Kia ora koutou katoa, uh, Territory 3 folks. Uh, welcome to the webinar. Apologies for the delayed start. Um, just got a few technical difficulties, uh, which we're just trying to sort through now. Um, so bear with us for a moment. I thought I'd start just to make sure that you all knew that we were coming online and um, I'm just working with Mike to, um, to sort that out. And hopefully he will be with us soon. Let's see. Hi, Jackie. Yes, thank you. I'm just trying to find out how to get Mike here. He is here, but he's a participant. <laughs> hey Mike, I'm looking for a button that invites you on, mate. I'm sorry. Um, normally, uh, it just happens automatically. Sorry, Mike, I'm just trying to find the invite pers participant to post. Yes, Mike, there normally is another link for... Yes, Lilia is also texting me. Sort of useful information because I cannot find the invite somebody to screen so bear with me for one second oh here we go sorry folks user error on my part there he is allow to talk more uh promote to panelists congratulations Mike you've now promoted to panelists thank goodness because we've had enough of me here Kia Mike. Kia Yeah, good. You? Oh, you're a little bit garbled there, mate. We might just have to work out how to get your sound quality up, but you're showing a full four bars of uh, sound. Maybe you could just say a couple of other things to see whether it's catching up. Is it coming right? So I could try it out, mate. Um, yeah, it is still garbled, so um, maybe yeah, if we switch over there, see how we go. One, two, three. All right. That sounds better. 
Oh, thank you, Jackie. Never enough of me. You're too kind. How was that? Are we can we can hear me better now. Yeah, that's much better, mate. Thank you very much. Sorry for the hassles. We've had uh, international customer support from Lydia, who's now in the US, and um, uh, and a fairly hopeless technical support person and myself. So welcome. Hi, my hearty my, and uh, yeah. great to have you on board. Love the cap. Um, reminds me of old times. Uh, yeah, folks. I'd, I'd wear it. My connection to uh, Kiwi landing pad back in the day was in San Francisco. So um, I thought, why not, eh? Yeah, cool, man. And we'll talk about that too, because um, uh, it's a great start to introducing you, really. I mean, um, you know, we came across each other when you were doing your first startup and uh, and also a really interesting community play, which was kind of accidental, which I'm looking forward to to talking about with folks. Um, but Territory okay. 3 community, welcome. Um, in the background, so I'm just uh, just relocating. To oh, sure. look, it's, it's always better to have some sort of live action thing going on in the webinar and you know, moving us around. You could show us around the, uh, the orchard. Uh, folks, welcome. Um, this is the first um, Territory 3 uh, webinar for this year. Uh, unfortunately, Annette Presley had to um, pull out um, of our last one. In fact, I think Lilia did one. But welcome, as always. Um, it's an interactive session. I'm really pleased to have Mike here. He'll talk a little bit about himself. If you do have any burning questions as we go through, which I'm sure you will, um, just put them in the Q&A section. So feel free to chat amongst yourselves and thanks for your support in my time of technical difficulty uh, through the chat. But if you have something specific you want answered, we'll make sure we stop at minute 30 just to look at those questions and, and go through those and then about 10 minutes before we stop. So enough of me. Mike, if you could just give us the, the version of, of, of life for you to this point, um, as I say, rolling back to the, the days of Grad Connect and, and moving us forward. Yeah, yeah, right. So, um, yeah, my story is uh, one of, uh, I guess, a lot of serendipity. I, I finished university in, I think, 2004 um, as a graduate in computer science, Victoria University in Wellington. Um, and I joined the Westpac graduate program where I met uh, my two other co-founders on the startup that I would go on to create called Grad Connection, which was, you know, essentially we got together and um, decided that there wasn't really any great resource for students who are researching their first career jump um, and we decided to long story short um, uh, quit our jobs at Westpac all on the same day and moved to Sydney to, to start what was essentially in 2008 um, a website for university students looking for their first job um, which doesn't sound like anything special now but in 2008 um, you know it was it was everything was print media and careers fairs at the time um, so we started that um, and, you know, after 12 years, we were in the position where four out of five university students in Australia were using, using our website um, and our products to find their first job. Um, and we got acquired by Seek in, in 2019, um, which has led me on to my, my new adventure in the New Zealand primary industry. Um, and alongside that um, time at Grad Connection, um, I also founded a what I think is still the largest co-working space in the Southern Hemisphere um, called Fishburners uh, in Sydney, just above Wynyard Station there. Um, and that was uh, essentially a co-working space that spawned out of my company, Grad Connection, where um, uh, myself and my co-founders were left in this position where we needed to either take over a much larger lease than we could afford or we had to had to move out of, of the office that we were we were in and we decided that the best solution was to go to IKEA and buy a bunch of um buy a bunch of desks and put it up and start renting those desks out on a per desk base, basis to our mates which you know again sounds like nothing special but 
in 2009, 2010, that was an unheard of uh, way of doing things. And so, um, yeah, basically built fish burners from what was, I think, 18 IKEA desks um, at $100 a pop um, up until, you know, what it is today, where it's been heavily supported by a huge number of corporates and, and um, uh, government entities in New South Wales as well, and continues to this day to be, you know, quite the, quite the landmark in the Australian tech startup scene. Um, I've, you know, I stepped down from the board off that, I think in maybe 2017, two years before I sold my business, because Great Connection was starting to really um, consume a lot of, a lot of our time. And after selling that um, business, moved straight back to New Zealand uh, with my young family and, and moved into the world of um, zero fossil fuel food production, uh, which is where I'm, which is where I'm sitting now. So hopefully that's a good three or four minute summary of, of, of my career to date um, in the startup scene. It's a wicked uh, summary, thanks, mate. And I and I love the lack of um, polish to the story of the founding of Fishburn. As a lot of people uh, I'm familiar with would have turned that into some sort of strategically oriented. You know, this is what we built, and and this is how successful it was because it was all intentional. But um, it was kind of, as you say, uh, serendipitous. My uh, my whole. Um, everything that I've done has been based on value, value-based sort of um, decisions in, in, in my life. And so when we started, um, you know, Grad Connection, it was because there was not really anything that was suitable for students. And I was a student at the time um, to find, find, you know, all the potential opportunities. And we all thought that we missed out on some of the potential opportunities that were available to us because we didn't pick up the right magazine or didn't go to the right careers fair. Um, and so my values at the time were, were helping students. Um, you know, by the end of it, I was 33, I think, when I sold that business and, and didn't really have much of a connection with students anymore. So I was getting pretty fairly fatigued with that business and moving on to, you know, a, a, a better value set in terms of, or a, a value set that more aligned with me as an early, you know, a young 30-year-old, which was, you know, the climate change and getting into that space. Um, and I have a business now that, you know, has... Uh, some people may have seen it. It's um, um, you know got, had a quite a bit of publicity, but I still don't really know what I'm doing, and I haven't really built an investable business yet. Um, but you know, here we are doing the same thing again, and I've I've just learned throughout that time that whether at Grad Connection, Fishburners, or um, Forest Lodge and NZ Zero, it's just following following my vision and following my values to the point where you know I'm living a very purpose purposeful existence, and at some point. Um, I'm going to figure out how to make it work. And so that's where I'm at again right now is in that process of, of figuring out how to make it work. That's very cool. And so I guess the themes today, I mean, our audience uh, online and, and as I said to you, a lot of folks uh, take this on, on demand later in the piece. It's really about, I guess, uh, the road ahead for founders uh, this year. So some pretty interesting conditions forecast. I've spent a lot of my time in office hours uh, confidentially just talking through probably more challenges than opportunities. And I think that's probably going to continue. Um, so I'd love your thoughts, sort of just to kick that aspect off from founding, co-founding grad uh, connection um, through to, you know, uh, I guess what you've been able or you see as relevant in that journey in terms of the ups and downs of building anything, primary industry or, or technology. And what sort of remained true um, to you in terms of uh, other than the values which you've explained what's remained true as a founder to the kind of core principles that you still use today and what's maybe changed um, in that journey as you've matured yeah I think I think um, I was actually just having a chat with Tracy before about this um, when I was 
in my early 20s, there was a big, a bit of egomania, I think, involved with starting a startup. You know, you wanted to be seen as being successful amongst your friends. You wanted to be seen as being successful amongst, um, you know, your previous colleagues, the, the, the students that you shared university experience with, all of those kinds of things. And by the time you're in your early 30s, you don't give a shit anymore. Um, and I think it's at that point that you don't give a shit anymore that people sort of realize there's a level of authenticity or genuine nature about what it is that you're trying to achieve. Um, you know, and so I was joking with Tracy before that, you know, I'm experiencing the dopamine hits of, you know, of a business that's had quite a bit of focus on it recently, just like I did when I was in my, um, in my early twenties. And, um, that's a, you know, that, that's something that I've recognized as, as, a, as a really interesting thing for me is that I do thrive on those dopamine hits. I do actually, think I quite like being the center of attention from time to time um but I guess the main thing now is that I'm not doing it from a I don't think I'm doing it from an egocentric perspective anymore I'm doing it more from a um this is this is how I want to promote the values you know my value now is how do we get the hell off fossil fuels as fast as we possibly can and you know everything that I'm doing around that you know relates to that now um, so yeah, I'd say that's probably been the biggest shift between my early 20s and my early 30s is transitioning away from um, you know, some form of egocentricity and moving towards, you know, sort of more uh, value-centric business uh, purpose. Um, but apart from that, everything else has remained static, right? Like, um, I'm a fiercely loyal co-founder. I think that's a, you know, hugely important, um, important thing. Um, I also, um, you know, I, I'm also very excited about change and, 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 and chaos and, and just trying to trying to make things easier and better. Um, that's the that's a big part of what I'm trying to trying to achieve. And that's always remained constant. And the other thing about being an entrepreneur is, you know, a blatant disrespect for authority. Um, that has remained something that has existed from now and, and and until where I am today. If someone tells me I can't do something, it makes me want to do it more. Um, and yeah, so I'd say that I'd say that's probably that's probably it. You know, like long term, the personality has been very consistent. Um, some of the drives or the motivations around what I'm doing have, have drifted slightly away from, you know, being about me to being about what I want to achieve. Um, but I don't, yeah, aside from that, I think it's all, it's all very much the same. Very cool. And like Tracy said on the chat, it's, it is a bit addictive, isn't it? You know, these hits and, and also just recognition for your purposeful stuff, right? And I think that's the important thing. Like I see a lot of, I've seen a lot of startup founders go under in my time um and one of the one things i always come back to is if your individual personality is bigger than your company you're always going to end up in trouble you know it should always be company first purpose first and then you're just riding the wake of of, of what it is that you're looking to you know achieve in this world and if you can get into that kind of position um you know you're going to go a lot further than if it's always going to be about you i think that's a really important lesson that i've learned along the way um both from my own experience as well as, as you know, being being a, a spectator and, and other people's successes and failures in the, in the space for sure. So let's, um, let's connect kind of climate change slash sustainability to to founders, because frankly, as I said to you in the sort of pre-call, um, I don't think we really get that yet. And as a, in my governance role, the last two term sheets I've been involved in negotiating have both had an ESG clause in them in terms of requirements for very early stage companies to actually um, actively, authentically demonstrate their strategy around that. So 
maybe if I've and, and you know jumping on any angle you have on that, but if I frame that up about you know going back to the days of grad connection and actually being in today's context, let's assume that there's still nothing so you know serving that market, still market opportunity. But in terms of what you think now, um, how as an early stage company would you, you know, authentically embrace um, both the sort of people and planet aspects of, of what I guess a lot of founders still see as big corporate stuff under this terminology ESG? Well, so, I mean, it depends on what your startup is, right? Like in the case of me being in farming now, um, a lot of it comes down to climate and environment. But if you're, say, creating a SaaS product, um, you know, that that is not going to be as relevant to you. But ESG just doesn't just mean climate. It also means how you treat people, how you treat um, the people that end up working for you. Um, and so I think the first thing is the clause in that term sheet, like actually take the time to look back at the, the VC or the investor that's looking at this and trying to figure out from there, you know, is this clause there because they're just ticking a box themselves? Is that clause yep. actually there for authentic reason? Or um, you know, or a non-authentic reason, or is it something that they really stand by and their values? There's thousands of VCs out there, um, and your lead VC should be the one that you actually align to from a values perspective. Because as long as your values align, you know, through the good times and the bad times, you're going to be able to figure out how to make it work with them. As soon as your values don't align, if you're say more focused on environmental outcomes and the VC that's going to be investing you doesn't give a shit, um, you know, you're going to end up in a bad situation. Um, you know, equity is like marriage, equity is for life. And so you cannot, uh, you have to make sure, you know, just like person that you want to spend the rest of your life with, you have to align on the same values. So that would be my first piece of advice is, you know, like find a VC that aligns with the values that you align with. And the ESG just doesn't, doesn't always just mean climate and water and, you know, um, the environment for which we're, you know, in my case, I'm farming. Um, ESG can mean, you know, how you treat people, how you pay people, how you interact with your local community, how you interact with new, the, new, the global community, you know, like, um, and just find, find an investor that aligns with your values, because let's be frank, you're not going to be able to change your values, you are who you are. Um, and so I think that's probably my best piece of advice, right? Just like finding a co-founder or finding a, a life partner or whatever it might be. Um, you know, it's, it's your values are never going to change. So make sure you find some someone or a partner that that that, that values align with yours. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it's great advice. And certainly in, in my latest venture, all things considered, we're finding that actually consumers, when you get them in a comfortable space, rather than ticking a box on a survey, actually almost embarrassingly care more about the social aspects. You know, how much friends are getting paid in retail stores and those things than they do around the sort of green climate aspects. And it's not that they don't care, it's just that their priorities in terms of making consumer decisions and buying decisions are actually more that way oriented. And they almost feel a bit embarrassed sort of sharing that with you, which is kind of a real challenge for businesses. It's also an interesting point that you raise, right? Is it, We're talking about sort of the internal mechanisms of a business here, which is around how do you raise capital to, you know, to fulfill the goals that you want to fulfill. But the other part of this is, you know, ESG very much aligns from the consumer side of things. Um, you know, what we did this year is we marketed a commodity product, New Zealand cherries, um, with a zero fossil fuel brand. Um, and we created a certification around that brand. And what we managed to achieve in the market, um, I'm really quite proud of. You know, we I think we could have gotten the vicinity of 20 to 25% more, um, more gate return, we call it. So more revenue back to my farm. Um, per kilo than anyone else in New Zealand growing cherries. 
and so a part of that ESG alignment is, you know, if you if you do it authentically and do it properly, uh, people will actually start to, to to swap. And in the case of any startup, you know, the hardest thing it's it's easy enough. Well, it's hard to obtain a customer, but it's even harder to obtain a customer off somebody else. And so if that's the position that you're looking in, then you have to be authentic about, you know, ESG because some of those customers will never care and some of those customers will care greatly. Um, and as long as you're authentic and they can identify that their values align with yours, um, then you're far more likely to pick them up and far more likely to keep them. Yeah, 100%. And Tracy was just saying in the chat too, I mean, this is also about your supply chain. And I know, um, you know, it's been fantastic that you've been very transparent about your journey, which is, uh, you know, I guess there's competitors that are clearly seeing what you're doing and now you're, you know, connecting that to revenue results um, uh, that actually show that it's worth doing. This is the interesting thing, right? Like the only way we're going to solve climate is through collaboration. And I don't care if the cherry orchard down the road who would be a traditional competitor of mine wants help because at the end of it, it's in my best interest and my family's best interest and, and your best interest and everybody's best interest if they also start a journey of decarbonisation. So we're, we're bordering on a completely new paradigm of the way that we do business here, um, which is, is, is not the, you know, our, our parents' generation, which is all about, you know, land grabbing and carving off a niche and protecting that niche. It's almost a, a much more collaborative way of doing business, um, which I think is, is something that at the moment, you know, with, with traditional thinking is, 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 a, is a really hard thing to, to, for people to invest in, right? Because what are you investing in if you're, if you're giving everything away? But, you know, potentially what you're investing in is um, authenticity. I think if you can invest in the most authentic business, the consumer will always stay with that authentic business in the, in the long run. That's sort of my theory moving forward. Yeah, and, and to your point, it's it's relatively new in terms of consumers actually doing something with it. I mean, I just saw a survey from McKinsey last week where they analysed what people said. You know, 70% of them in America, it was a US study, wanted to live a more, you know, said they wanted to live a more sustainable lifestyle. But when they analysed 400 billion US dollars of CPG, uh, consumer packaged goods um, uh, and uh, data, real data, there hadn't been much shift up until only a couple of years ago. But now it's just taken off. In the sustainability hasn't been made easy for the consumer. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, like my, my little boy just turned four years old and he really wanted this fire truck. And it's a piece of plastic made in China, you know, but he wanted it and that's, that's fine. Like he's four and he deserves a fire truck in my opinion, but the amount of packaging and the amount, you know, involved in that, there wasn't really a good alternative option available. It's hard to be sustainable as the consumer at the moment. And so what can we do as business owners and startup founders to make it an easy decision because you know if i put my cherries on the shelf next to some let's say less sustainable cherries on the shelves the consumer will pick mine um, and so i think that's where the real opportunity and and entrepreneurism uh, in startups and entrepreneurs entrepreneurism lies in new zealand entrepreneurship in new zealand is is the fact that we have this unique opportunity to position ourselves in a way that it makes it easy for the consumer to do what they say they want to do um, because that you know in every business if you can make something simpler for someone they will they will exchange that simplicity for money um and so that's where that's where we're playing at the moment right we're trying to figure out ways to make the decision easy for them so they can feel good and look good to to their peers by by going down that sustainable path and yeah i guess you know thinking about those that are um uh, not in the B2C space and the B2B space, of course, everything comes back to customers of some sort at some point. 
What would you be thinking about if, you know, sort of put more of your earlier venture hat on today about being a B2B business and, and just what the key things are to trying to understand your customers and how they're dealing with this consumer shift? Well, when we started Grey Connection, it was a really it was a really interesting space to be playing in, right? Because our major competition were the were these print booklets that were handed out at universities, um, and, and there was also careers feds. And online, there was sort of seek ads, for example. Um, and the problem was is that everything, all the information would go stale really quickly. If you print something in a booklet, it goes stale quite quickly. If you don't get hold of that booklet when it's distributed, how do you get hold of that booklet? Um, likewise, with a um, with a with a seek job ad, it was up for thirty days at a time, and then it disappeared. Um, the interesting problem that we had was that a seek job ad at the time, I think, was two hundred dollars, and to go in one of these print booklets was bordering on ten thousand dollars, right? And we were trying to sit in the middle somewhere and charge sort of five, six, seven thousand dollars to go on a website, and so that was a really tough position to be in, right, at the time because why would we go on your website for $5,000 when we can pay $200 to go on Australia's largest job board? But what we were able to do is position ourselves in a way of saying, well, the information is going to be up online all year round. You can change that information whenever you want to. So it's always relevant. But I'm a student and I know for a fact that I was looking for jobs right throughout my academic career. And the information was never available online and it definitely wasn't available in these booklets. And so we positioned ourselves quite differently. Um, and while it's not directly ESG related, I, I guess, it is positioning ourselves in a way where we're, you know, we're being different and solving a problem that, that everybody knew existed for the student, but we were the first ones to get in and do it. Um, you know, and that's, that's essentially what this is all about. It's the, it's the same, the same premise, right? Is, is there is a big problem in the world and how you position yourselves to solve that problem is probably going to make a big, um, uh, you know, a big impact on the, on the way your customers end up receiving you. And so I think people were flabbergasted that we were charging, I mean, by the end of it, we were charging $20,000, $30,000 per annum to some companies to essentially put their job ads up on a website that they could have done for $200 on New Zealand, on Australia's largest job board. Um, and so, yeah, does that does that kind of answer the question? Like, it's yeah. It's, look, I, I mean, I, I see the immediate relevance um, around your more dynamic, more flexible, and probably just actually building a history for job seekers um, to actually see what's been going on, and that's what you're paying for rather than tactical, and and that feels very relevant to the challenge we're having today, both in the ecosystem. Uh, especially for top talent, um, and and you know up until recently in tech, obviously been a lot of layoffs now. But the what I'm finding myself and talking to other founders is that um, having that purpose and having that authenticity of the mission behind you is actually really making a difference in terms of who you can attract, but also you know what they will accept from an early stage remuneration point of view. Now at some point they're expecting that mission because they believe in it too reap more things as you said earlier uh in terms of the traditional rewards of, of of dollars and so forth but it feels like especially in these younger generations there's there's more of a sort of evaluation of purpose and i think um you don't get that off a job seek ad for 200 bucks no exactly right exactly right so um sort of uh reversing again i'm sort of traversing between the future and the past. hopefully this is fun for you it's like a it's an old memories kind of going down the going down the line <laughs> I haven't, actually, I haven't actually spoken about my startup life in Australia for quite some time. So, yeah, no, it's cool. So, do, do a little secret exposed, Mike. But um, 
The um the governance side of things is something that right at the early stages, I think founders need more perspective from people like you. Um, talk to us about Grad Connection and NZ Zero and the differences, if any, in the approach you've taken to actually getting, you know, both that formal direction and um and that sort of, you know, these are the skills and experiences we need to actually help us grow the business at that sort of uh, board level. Well, John, I'm, I've always been terrible at governance. <laughs> and uh, so I think I think the, the, the first thing I went through was you've got to have, in the early stage governance, is, it, it's hard to put a formal structure around something that is just so chaotic, which is the, the, the first few days or first few weeks or even first few years of a startup, right? Um, and so one of the most important things is, is a co-founder team that has very complementary um, complementary skill sets, very similar values, and um, you know is is built around built around the same mission. So therefore, you all trust each other. Um, so in my early days of Great Connection, you know we had um, someone who was particularly strong in the financial side of things. I was particularly strong in the uh, computer programming side of things, and my other co-founder was particularly strong in the marketing. Uh, side of things and and that worked really well um and so for a long long time in fact you know great connection up to the point of it sold you know the the founders were the board um but right. that is also because we, we bootstrapped the whole way and never ended up in a position where we needed to bring on external money um and as a result we never needed uh we never had anyone wanting to be on our board either so i, I guess organically it kind of grew that way by the end of it um, when we were getting acquired, there was quite a bit of, I guess, business hygiene that needed to be sorted out in terms of finances and accounting and stuff to make sure that a publicly listed company was able to buy this 12-year-old startup that had been continually run by three people who had organically learned how to do everything along the way. Um, and, you know, in reality, that was quite an inefficient process. So um, there was nothing untoward, so to speak. It was just, I don't know, you know, publicly listed companies want want discipline um and you know there were there were places where we were definitely lacking in that in that space and so there would have been at some point in the optimum time to maybe bring in further governance and that that never happened um because we were just continuing to grow the business that way that we were growing it it all got sorted out in the end but um that was the first thing and so when i came back to new zealand um oh actually no so the second thing is when i founded fish burners um it was a much 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 of a different game because um, you know, we we were founding fish burners with a whole bunch of different startups that wanted to be involved in creating creating this opportunity. And very quickly, we realized we were all working on our own businesses and our own businesses needed to take priority, right? Because they were our businesses, whereas fish burners was a co-working space. And so very quickly, we um, established some governance around that to make sure that um, it could be run, you know, and it could be run and the workload could be shared because it wasn't any one individual's baby. You know, people say, oh, wow, you found a fish burners. And, you know, I did, but in reality, fish burners would have remained a frat house of a, of a co-working space had other people not come in and turned it more professional. Um, and so from that side of things, the governance was poured in really early and made a significant difference into the way that, you know, fish burners developed. Um, since coming back to New Zealand, um, I did my board of directors course um, because I've always been very weak on the governance side. And from that board of directors course, I learned a lot, but I also learned that I'm not, I'm not a director. That's not my personality or my role. Um, I'm not there from a governance perspective. I will always be a CEO. I'll always be the one trying to grow businesses and making it work. Um, and I need people uh, to keep me in check in that regard, you know, allow me to expand and grow, but also um, rein me in. And, 
the great thing is, you know, now I've got two, two co-founders working on NZ Zero um, with me that have very complementary skill sets. Uh, we don't have a formal board yet. Um, we haven't raised money yet, but we'll be looking at doing that shortly. Um, and uh, I have my beautiful wife, Rebecca, who is a CFO, um, who now keeps me in check and that I like to spend money on things um, to further my, my mission and my values. And, and we've got to make sure that, you know, that that's kept in check and that's accounted for and that there is a plan on how to get that money back at some point um, in the future. So, you know, like I think from that perspective, I've been through both very formal governance to very loose governance and in between as well um, during that time. And I would never advise one way or the other um, necessarily straight up. It really comes down to you know, how the founders, um, how the founder in question wants to run their business and um, both ways can work really well. At some point, your business is gonna grow up and need it. And I think probably some of the talent is, is working out when that is. And other times your business will raise money and you'll immediately have it because um, anyone investing in your business is going to want that layer of governance to make sure that you know their investment is as safe as it possibly can be. Yeah, yeah, no, that I think that 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 all makes perfect sense in terms of those different scenarios. It's a, it's a great exposure in terms of scenarios. Yeah, I do think sometimes people over-engineer it. They try to go down the path of governance too early. And I think that often can lead to hamstringing the entrepreneur. You know, entrepreneurs at the end of the day are are creative people. You know, we might not be creative in the sense that we can paint paintings, but we're creative in the sense that we're creating demand out of nothing and then sort of supplying that demand. Um, and so for a long time, you don't want people who um, are very good at governance from, from stifling that creativity. I think part of being really good at governance is also recognizing, you know, when you are potentially being a handbrake when you shouldn't be um, and allowing those businesses to flourish and foster and take the necessary risks that they need to take in order to carve out their, their place in the market. Yeah, cool, cool. Um, let's talk about culture for a bit and then I want to cover wellness, which I always do both, you know, in terms of individual and, and for your teams. What have you seen? I mean, I'm intrigued because my view of Australian culture and business and, and potentially personally as well is, is quite defined and quite different to how I see New Zealand business culture. I'm not going to disclose my thoughts on it. What, what, do you, what did you find being a Kiwi building a business um, predominantly in Australia? It's really interesting, like um, Sydney in particular, um, you know, the first question you would often well, get out, not the first question, but within the first five minutes, someone will try to establish what high school you went to. Um, oh. So that was really interesting. And I think being a Kiwi over there and having done my high school and university in New Zealand, people had no concept of whether the high school I went to was any good um, and whether the university I went to was any good. And as a result, we got cut a lot of slack, I guess, in that sort of pseudo class system that kind of exists over over in Sydney. And as a result, I was allowed to be who I wanted to be, right? And I don't think I was, I think I had the advantage of not being particularly, you know, judged or or put into a silo or a box too too early on in that piece. But I did see that happen a lot, you know, like some of the public school kids um, that came, you know, came out were I think, you know, in, in some cases discriminated against by that kind of culture that existed around, um, you know, that, that sort of private schoolboy mentality in Sydney. Um, so I definitely noticed that. And I don't think that exists in New Zealand. I'm very grateful that doesn't exist in New Zealand, you know. Only in Christchurch. Maybe in Christchurch, but I mean, <laughs> you, know, you know, I don't think I would, 
personally, and I'm, I'm sure you wouldn't either, John, it doesn't matter what high school you went to, it's not really about that. And so I think that's one of the first key key differences, especially in Sydney. I'm, I'm not sure if that same sort of, um, you know, sort of culture existed in necessarily in Victoria or South Australia or, or, or Western Australia, but in Sydney, it, you know, it, it, it definitely did. But the other thing um, about moving to Australia to start a startup is I felt like the New Zealand shackles had largely been broken from me and that, you know, in New Zealand, I think starting a startup, I was very scared of failure. Um, I was scared of how people would look at me from that failure perspective um, and going over to Australia and, and, and being separated from, uh, you know, my contacts in New Zealand actually allowed me to be more creative and take more risk. Um, I think one of the problems that, you know, New Zealand still has is that I think that the term tool poppy is well overdone, but I do think there is some merit to what, when people talk about that, about how, um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily that you want people to fail, but it kind of, it kind of, there's that culture that if they do fail, it, it kind of validates the fact that you haven't tried. Um, and I don't think that exists in Australia in the same way at all. Um, I, Australians say that it does, but I think there is a distinct difference between the two cultures in that regard. Um, and so, you know, that that's something that I'm, you know, that that I think the older generation of startup founders that I include myself in now, I'm nearly 40, you can see all the gray hair in my in my beard now. Um, you know, we've got to we've got to make sure that we we support Kiwi founders to take risks and to feel comfortable taking risks because um, you know, that's always gonna be something that will hold us back if we if we don't do that. And potentially I might have noticed the same culture in Australia had I been Australian and had a lot of Australian friends and not had that degree of separation, um, mm. but I didn't miss it um, through my own personal experience. And, um, you know, as a result, I, I felt that I and my co-founders really flourished. One of the conversations I'm having more regularly, um, usually uh, reasonably regularly, but is with founders about when enough is enough when when it's time to maybe realize that the timing or the pressure or the impacts of things not really going to plan you know more capital being required even if it's your own versus investors what are your thoughts on sort of ways to think about um that sort of you know do i go for another few months or is it time to think about another idea that i could build into a business are you in love with your startup simple as that you know if you're not in love with it um it's kind of like the breakup with with that with that partner that you've had for three years but you know you don't want to break up because it's hard but you also know it's probably the right thing to do um and the simple answer is are you in love with your startup if you're not in love with your startup you've been in your startup too long um you know by the time i finished grad connection i was no longer in love with my startup i was probably out of love with it three or four years prior yeah um but at that point you know it was it was big enough um, you know, it was, it was, it was getting to the point of being quite a large, a large business and, um, you know, entrepreneurship, I think for a lot of it is about freedom and creativity. And eventually if you stay in that business too long, that freedom and creativity is, is, is given away. And so we were in this unique position where, you know, all our chips were in the center of the table. So you didn't want to get up and walk away from the table because all of this work that you put in and all this effort and all the success would have been left behind. Um, and you know, it just so happened that we were lucky enough to sell sell our business and 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 move on from that. But you know, had we not sold the business, it probably would have only been one or two years before we would have figured out another way of um, probably um, you know probably moving on from it because we weren't in love with it. Um, yeah. So I think that's a, that's a really important factor. 
Um, and I think mental health is a, is a really interesting um, topic. My, my big thing um, through Fishburners, through Great Connection, and now through NZ Zero is imposter syndrome. I get it all the time. I'm sitting there, you know, I remember the first time I really had, I wouldn't say a panic attack is the right word, but just like this anxiety just fall over the top of me when I was like, holy hell, we've got all of the staff that rely on us to live you know we've got they we pay them you know once a month and that you know we support that and here i am and i still think i'm a bit of a pleb i don't really know how i got here and all these people now rely on me um and i just you know it was never really anything that i think was a a massive it wasn't a panic attack or a breakdown or anything like that but it was this you know this constant fear that um you know existed in the back of my mind if i don't do this right a lot of people are uh, you know rely on me and my co-founders and if we don't do this right we're you know we're going to let a lot of people down um and that has that continued on through fish burners as well you know fish burners had a huge amount of publicity and press in, in, in sydney and australia in general and here i was the guy that basically constructed 18 ikea, IKEA desks you know now dealing with multi-million dollar sponsorship deals for fish burners and being like why am i here like <laughs> this is not the way that I had planned this to happen at all. Yet here I am, and everyone's, you know, congratulating me on starting something. And I, you know, built 18 IKEA desks and found far more talented people than me to take it to the next level. Was essentially what happened. And yet here I was, the focal point of that. Um, you know, and likewise with NZ Zero now, I'm just, I'm a, I'm a farmer that planted 9,300 cherry trees and manages to farm them without burning any fossil fuels, and somehow I've turned into an industry leader in this space and I don't really know what I'm doing yet here I am again and so for me um you know that's a big part of, of for me personally imposter syndrome is a huge part of of my entrepreneurship journey and I've realized it probably always will be um and other people will have different you know different anguishes that come come with us as well so I think your point on self-care is hugely important um as entrepreneurs sometimes we feel guilty when we're not working um and that's something that i've definitely tried to stamp out in the last few years is not feeling guilty about not working and taking time for myself and for my family and and, and trying to um build up the balance in my life that i need in order to be sustainable um that sounds a bit cliche but you know business sustainability also you know involves founders mental health and physical health yeah, 100%. And I started a podcast um, series, um, don't even know why, to be honest, uh, last year. And one of my guests, Raylene Castle, who runs Sport New Zealand, actually was CEO of Australia New Zealand. So she's, you know, really I couldn't believe how bad. But that is actually an example of schoolboy rugby gone wrong in, in, in Sydney. I love my rugby playing years in Sydney, um, but I thought she was treated terribly. Um, yeah. Anyone yeah, wants to read yeah so so and, and so you can imagine you know her perspective on this imposter syndrome thing and she's come up with a wonderful alternative phrase which i think just resonates because it just takes the aggression out of out of that phrase too is like natural nerves yeah um and you know to your point demonstrating it these are things that we that we think about and naturally sort of have uh, anxiety about to some degree quite regularly and it's not about eliminating it's just about actually managing and dealing with it in a in a good way without all the negative consequences. That's it. That's it. Yeah, no, um, that's a really good way of, of thinking about it. Because I've, I've often sort of done a lot of introspection, I guess, and I've realized that my the anxiety that I experience around that is always very authentic. It's coming from a very good place. Um, yeah. And I, it's coming from a very good place. That's, that's 
the first thing to acknowledge and, and, and be proud of that, you know, if you didn't feel this, you probably, you know, aren't, aren't, aren't thinking the right way. Yeah. What are your biggest tips uh, in terms of, you know, talking about vulnerability and natural nerves and these different things around leadership in terms of building that team and the core things that you see as just crucial to keeping them, you know, motivated and, um, and committed to, to your cause? Well, yeah, I think um, one of my my biggest weaknesses in leadership is is I'm very much uh, um, probably too too friendly, too peer orientated, too, um, and, and sometimes you need that separation. I think between someone who is leading and and someone who is part of the team, um, and I've always blurred those lines. I think a bit too much. Um, if we were ever working together in a startup, John, you and I would be best of mates. We would be hanging out. All things and then we would be best mates with our first second third employees um and at some point what i found is you know like, like while that's very good and that can foster a very good culture um on the other side of it you know sometimes there needs to be formality and, and discipline and all of those kinds of things and when you don't have that you know that that when you've got that too much of a friendly relationship that is a lot more difficult um and so that's one always been one of my my big weaknesses um and yeah, I don't. I don't really have any necessarily advice on on leadership or how to be a good leader. I think the answer is to be authentic and to to be vulnerable um, a lot because I think people really open up to you when you're not presenting yourself as some infallible human that's perfect in every way. I think that you know fosters a much better relationship. Um, but I think I probably do that too much. I think I overcook that a bit too much sometimes, and um, as a result, you know, that's led to some. You know, in my in my time, some situations with employees, with with co-founders, with clients, um, where I've probably had to deal with with friction that um, you know I I found very hard to deal with um, because of the way that I built those relationships. So I don't think there's a right or wrong answer there, but I do think the you don't you don't want to be too infallible, um, but maybe you don't want to go as too far as I naturally do, which is to be everyone's best mate um, either. Um, there's probably a nice balance in there. Um, which is which is something everyone will settle on. You know, everybody's different. Everybody will settle on their own um, their own style of leadership at some point. And you know, you've you're in the privileged position. Of, you mentioned co-founders a lot, and you've you know had these different experiences with co-founders. Does any of that perspective change in terms of if I ask the question specifically to you know the co-founder relationship and setting that up right? I think I think the thing you know, like I. I all my co-founders, um, you know, I, I, I very much admire, very much value um, the time that we've, we've spent together. But we all grow up. You know, I started Grad Connection when I was 23, 22 maybe, and I sold it when I was 34. And people grow up in that time. Um, and so I think the answer is that you're always going to naturally experience some drift um, with co-founder relationships. You're always going to experience different priorities. Um, and you know that's natural. And I think the answer is is that you have to you have to be aware that that is going to happen, especially if you run a business for ten years. Um, you know that is that is going to happen during that time. Um, and the real skill set is not stopping that from happening. The real skill set is allowing that to happen in a way that works for everybody. Uh, and that might mean one co-founder leaves the business early. That might mean that one co-founder naturally moves into a CEO role, and another co-founder takes a step back. It could you know it could mean that you know one co-founder moves to a completely different area of the world. Um, there's all sorts of ways of doing it. But one thing I would you know, stress is that co-founder harmony is probably the most important thing 
um, you know, that a business can have. And if you don't have co-founder harmony, then the business suffers you know, massively as a result. And so one of the things that I would always stress, and I think I've always been very good at is making sure that we, you know, sort of try and hold on to that, um, that harmony and, and, and be flexible and make sure that people are allowed to do what they want to, they want to do because you know when you're 23 you're you're out partying when you're 33 you've got young children it's a, it's a hugely different lifestyle at that point um, and hugely different set of motivations so yeah. yeah that would be my advice is talk regularly talk small and never let problems get too big yeah 100 percent, 100 and um folks we're down to the last 10 minutes um the time's gone really quickly as it always does because you know fascinating conversations i find around people's journeys and appreciate you being so candid and sharing Mike um I want to sort of round out um if there aren't any questions folks I'll keep an eye out for those if you do have some just around this whole sustainability journey because for me I mean you're in a, a quite a unique position from the, the way I see things and the people I talk to to kind of experience both worlds and really passionately committed obviously to um you know the, the climate agenda um what are your sort of parting thoughts around where we're at and where we need to be and and you know just anything you have on the gap and how we actually kind of squeeze um that and, and narrow that well with the climate i think there's three possibilities right there's there's either you deny it or what i'm seeing a lot more of now is acknowledge it but deny that you can do anything about it um, and you know that's one possibility um, and I see them almost as bad as each other um, now. Um, the second thing is, is that you can um, you can get into a tailspin because the future is looking pretty bleak at the moment um, and you know suffer your mental health will suffer as a result or you can actively do something about it um, and I've chosen to actively do something about it and I've chosen to do it in a way that I think is really productive and that you've got two sides at the moment, right? You actually, you've got a lot of sides, but you've got activism and you've got traditional business and you've got academics and you've got entrepreneurs. And an academic will, has been talking about how we can do this for the last 30 years and that the climate change is coming. And you've got entrepreneurs on the other side that have been building businesses and actually making traction in, in their different areas. You've also got activists that are telling people what they need to be doing. Um, and you have conservative business that, is making good money and doesn't necessarily want to change because why would you change in a situation when you're you know you're, you're doing very well in business and i want to sit right in the middle i want to sit in the middle where i have taken a traditional business and with that traditional business i have applied as much sustainable practice that i possibly can and when i say sustainable i mean specifically around climate um not so much around you know things as the as water or what sprays that we use things like that but specifically around carbon footprint take a traditional business take take the academic side of it merge it together and then don't preach like i'm not about preaching i don't want to say hey john hey look i've saved 80 tons of carbon a year what the hell are you doing mm. i want to be saying hey john why don't you come and check out my orchard um because i'll show you what i've done and then you can decide whether you want to apply that to your business or not and that's where I'm finding I'm getting a real impact is that I've had thousands of farmers come to see what it is that I've been doing, because let's be honest, farmers are naturally very clever, inquisitive people. And if I can get them to come to the orchard and ask questions and learn, and I can help with some of the misinformation that exists out there, 
and they can see me as someone who knows what I'm talking about is very authentic and what I'm doing and very knowledgeable than what I'm doing, then maybe I can start to, for them to, you know, encourage them to start making small changes. Um, but also I've had hundreds of academics come out and see what I'm doing as well. And I've shaped, you know, some of their thinking, I think, quite dramatically by bringing a level of business pragmatism to what it is that they've been trying to get, you know, happening for a long time. And so that's where I see myself sitting. Um, and that's where I'd encourage anyone who, you know, is, is concerned about the climate. I think, I think one of the big things, though, is I don't want to tell everyone that they should be or they need to be concerned about the climate. I don't want to be dogmatic in that regard, because for some people, their values align much more with, you know, other, other things that are just as genuine or just as important, like, you know, the the um uh the working wage or the the living wage sorry or it might be around you know uh, modern day slavery or you know there's thousands of different noble causes to be a part of and to be fr to be frank if you try to spread your focus across all of those causes you're never going to have an impact in any of them and so for me it's climate for me it's you know wanting to show people how to do it without preaching to them that they need to do it and um if we can get enough people like me doing that then you know, potentially we stop with the excuses of, oh, why should we bother because China's not? Or if New Zealand completely stopped burning fossil fuels, then, uh, um, you know, then it wouldn't make a dent on global emissions. And the answer is, well, you are kind of correct. But if we don't lead by example, if we're not truly authentic in the way that we do things, then the world's not going to change either. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's, that's the way I see it at the moment is if I can, if I can sit there and, and, and help farmers figure out how to decarbonize, help make their businesses more resilient, because, wow, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen that that resilience needs to really step up in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, as a result, if, you know, if what I can do and what I can show people has a thousand X return towards the environment later on down the track, then, you know, that's a big, big win for me. So a long way to go but a lot of promise at the same time that people are really starting to take note now. We're seeing some traditional business, uh, you know, business-related political parties that have so far been very quiet now, so all of a sudden being very active, um, at least vocally, with what they're saying about climate. And I think that's a really good move in the right direction. Um, so, yeah, let's, let's see what happens over the next 20 years. But if it all goes to shit and we all end up dying, at least I know um, that I tried my hardest. And that's all I can do. Yeah, oh, look, I mean, that's very sage advice and a great perspective. And I think, you know, that's one of the things we've seen, sadly, from the corporate industry is let's get a framework like this is a sustainable development goals. And, you know, as a company, just make sure we've got a tick in each box. One thing I'd add to this is that big business is, is a big ship with a small rudder. And mm. I am convinced that it's small business and entrepreneurs that are the ones that are going to change this um, because we're dynamic, we're thinkers um we're more flexible and i think that allows you know what our role is is that we can you know i i think what i see a lot of is big business waiting for technology to catch up so they don't have to change whereas we are change, change facilitators as small business owners and entrepreneurs and so you know that's where i'm playing in the climate space now is electrifying an orchard when everyone was telling me i'm overcapitalizing a business that's you know um that's you know already run on the, the skin of your teeth and the answer is, well, yes, 100% by traditional means I am overcapitalizing a business that has very, very small margins. But what's come of it has been a huge amount of attention um, to what it is that I'm doing. And I've actually managed to increase those margins as a result. So, you know, let's, let's continue to be dynamic and fresh thinking and, and, and go out and solve the world's problems, whatever they might be. Just hold on to the values that you hold dear and, 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 and live a purposeful, meaningful startup life.
Yeah, and kudos to you for getting it through to the end point of actually showing the commercial returns, because I think that's the challenge for a lot of people driving impact messages is, yeah, just people, as your point, you know, they're going to be into what they're into, and a lot of them just won't change unless they see a, a commercial return. And, uh, you know, things can deliver, as you've shown, a commercial return. Mike, it's been fascinating talking to you folks. Um, if you've got any last minute uh, questions, you know, I agree, Tracy, great inspiration and thank you. Um, we will wrap up. Mike, I'm going to give you the last word in about um, 20 seconds to just um, impart one more piece of... of uh, in a monologue about my last words. That was the, that was the point to uh, to end it. Now I've got to come up with a new monologue. And yeah, yeah, the pressure's on, mate. I mean, that's just the way it works, unfortunately. It's all about changing it up. Folks, uh, I really hope you've enjoyed this. I certainly have. It's been great to hear a story of so many diverse elements of building businesses and, and the purpose side of things as well. Uh, for those of you who have friends and associates who couldn't be here today, um, it will be on demand online in about 90 minutes. So look out for that at territory3.community forward slash academy. Uh, that's where you'll find all of our over 200, I think, uh, webinars that we've done over the last few years for inspiration and information. Uh, thanks to our sponsors, New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, K1W1, Avenda Management, Jasmine Investments, uh, Amazon Web Services. Um, without uh, them, we couldn't uh, bring you uh, the work that we do into the community. And, and Mike, thank you again. And the last word is yours. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd say the last thing is... Um how serendipitous this whole thing is because you know when I was running my startup Greg Connection and we'd started fish burners um, I spent a lot of time in San Francisco and 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 spent a lot of time in Kiwi landing pad which is you know something that that you obviously set up um, and at the time I had no one to thank because I didn't know you um, but thank you very much for for you know for, for founding this and starting it up because it was it was incredibly useful for me um, and I just think this it's just a funny story how this has gone full circle. And, you know, now here I am offering some value, um, hopefully, hopefully some value back to you. Um, so keen to support, um, you know, what you guys are doing with Territory 3 in any way I can and, and, and helping, helping other New Zealand founders go down their journey, their values, purpose-based journey to success. Thank you, mate. And there was one more question. It's an important commercial question. Several people on the chat, I don't know whether you saw it, have asked whether you still have any cherries left for sale and where they could get them. This is my big problem at the moment is that I have electrified a crop that is only around for six weeks in the year. Uh -huh. uh, so my big, my big thing now is I need to expand what I'm doing into a another farming product that has ability to have something on the shelves 12 months in the year and if you know uh, Tracy Aitken and what she's up to I think we've got a call coming up next because I'm about to tell her exactly what my expansion plans are um, but it's to get uh, to get into viticulture um, because cherries are a 50 million dollar industry in, in New Zealand and wine is a two billion dollar industry so if I'm going to have an impact on climate I need to be playing in a different field. So I need something that can be on the shelves 12 months in the year, um, something potentially with higher margins, but more importantly, brand IP. Um, and so that's uh, that's where we're going. Always thinking growth and purpose. Mike Casey, thanks so much for sharing. Folks, thanks for watching and catch you next time. Cheers.